Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, first off, I want to apologize. We are in a um, kind of an amateur sound recording studio, the same place I've been uh, for all these, but just outside they're doing a little bit of uh, work in the uh, in the building, so you guys may hear some of that and hopefully I'm not too distracted by it. Um, in the meantime, let's get right on into today's class session with Hitchcock. So we last discussed um, the trouble with Harry, which we talked about. Hitch, Hitch made, you know, a rather indulgent film, a move, movie that was more for him than for the American audience. Right. Only one year later, he comes back with a movie that is specifically tailored for the audiences in that time. And that is a remake of his classic, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. For those of you who might not remember or who haven't heard that episode, I'll just give a quick recap of basic overall plot, which which is really the same in both films. Um, you have married couple on vacation, accidentally find themselves involved with espionage and spying, and, and their child is kidnapped and, as a way to keep them quiet about a... Um, an assassination attempt that they've learned of. So both the British 1934 version and the 1956 American version, very similar storyline. And this remake retains all of the things that we talked about in that episode. It talks about, um, retains the humor and contrasting that with the suspense. Still have the MacGuffin of the assassination and and it does a phenomenal job of integrating the characteristics of the locations into the story itself. But the tone and the execution are very, very different, which is natural considering the fact that not only is it a different era and Hitchcock has grown as a filmmaker. In fact, he told Truffaut that the 1934 movie was directed by a talented amateur, but the 1956 film was made by a professional. But one also has to consider the fact that he's making it for a different audience. He's not making it for a British audience. He's making it for a narrative, for an American audience. And therefore, there's a necessity of changing some of the some of the execution and the tone for that for that audience. Um, in Hitchcock on Hitchcock Volume Two, in a um, in chapter entitled The John Player Lecture, Hitch says, and I quote, I was short of a subject and I thought of all the pictures I had made, this would suit the American public. So Hitch, looking for a film, decides that The Man Who Knew Too Much is the way to go. So he gets the writing process started. He brings in John Michael Hayes to write it. Um, but he intentionally keeps John Michael Hayes away from the original film and merely approaches every meeting just telling John Michael Hayes the story of the man who knew too much. You know, one piece at a time, and then John Michael Hayes would go home and write it, bring it back to Hitch, and Hitch would give him the next part of the story, you know, which is not unlike Hitch's approach uh, to adapting novels, which I think is interesting that he would approach an adaptation uh, of his own film the same way, not, be, not being precious over it, but understanding that it's, it is another adaptation. So they go on to cast Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day, um, who would have been considered big box office draws at the time. Um, you know, and that's just another level of this, you know, revamping something for a different audience. There's a making of documentary for this film. And there's a story that get, gets told where 
Hitch didn't want Doris Day to sing a song in the film. Doris Day was you know, a very popular singer who was also doing some acting. Um, but Hitch didn't want, you know, just because we have a singer in the film doesn't mean that they should necessarily sing a song, you know. But the studio really wanted it. And Hitch understood that, you know, it was the client that he's, you know, his his employer that he's working for, you know, is asking him to do this. And the studio and, and, I, and probably Hitch as well understood that the audience would almost expect it. So even though he didn't want it, he understood that the audience would need it. So he goes to Doris Day and her people and says, uh, you know, um, we want a song or the studio wants a song. I don't really want a song, but the studio wants a song. So let's have a song. I don't really know what kind of song I want, but just, you know, come back to me when you have something. So they go away and they come and they write uh, the song K Sera Sera, which when Hitch hears it, tells them, you know, I didn't know what kind of song I wanted, but now that I've heard this, that's the song I want. So this... So it, it, this this whole story is really ironic because Hitch didn't want the song to begin with, but it ended up becoming the only thing that garnered the film an Oscar. It was the only thing it was even nominated for was Best Original Song. And it wins the Oscar for a song that Hitch didn't even want in his movie. So the trouble with Harry, along with just life experience, really taught Hitch that the audience was absolutely crucial to his career. If he didn't have an audience, he didn't have a career. And because of that, he'd spent a lot of time considering the audience, considering the modern audience, considering how the audience was different from 1934 to 1956, how different it was from Britain to the United States. And these were his thoughts recorded um, in an essay called The Man Who Knew Too Much that's been compiled in Hitchcock on Hitchcock Volume 2. He said, today I couldn't possibly make The Man Who Knew Too Much as it was originally conceived from for the very practical reason that now audiences know too much. He goes on to describe how now the modern audience dissects every movie. You know, there was a time, I guess, when people would go to the movie and just watch it and say, well, that was good or that was bad. But somewhere somewhere along the way that changed and the audience's consumption of movies changed and started to look a little bit more like we have them now today where – you go see a movie, you talk about the movie, you talk about everything about the movie, and you dissect the movie. And he says, and I quote, Today the director must anticipate this dissection. A character cannot wander casually into the action as he used to. Now he must be explained. All the plot threads have to be coordinated. Scripts must be written with an eye to clarifying every detail. And it's that clarification that becomes a problem. And the reason is if you're stopping to give the audience information – that they have to have to understand the story, but you have to stop the plot to do it, then you're running the risk of boredom because you have to give there's, – there's this constant balance that, that all storytellers and especially filmmakers seem to have because they have such a limited time to tell their story that you have to give the audience information for them to understand it, but at the same time you have to move the plot along. You have to give them that exposition that – or in other words, that information that's crucial to the telling of the story. And how do you do that? How do you give the audience information without boring them? Well, that same question was posed to Alfred Hitchcock in, a, in an interview with the American Film Institute, the AFI. And that is found in the book Hitchcock Interviews. 
And in that question, he specifically references the beginning of the movie. Let me set the stage for you. You have Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day and their son. The character's name is Hank. I don't know the actor's name. All on the back of a bus in Marrakesh. Now, for those of you who don't know, Marrakesh is in Northern Africa. And at least the way it's presented in the film, I didn't do the research on this, so I don't know. I'm assuming this is right. At least as it's presented in the film, it is a largely Muslim country. So there's three white people on a bus filled with a bunch of Muslims in Northern Africa. Now, the audience is immediately going to recognize Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. So clearly those are the heroes of our film. And their son, Hank, gets up and, as curious children do, begins to walk up the aisle of the bus. And the bus hits a bump or something. And he gets knocked back and on his way back, clutching at anything that can keep him balanced accidentally grabs a woman's veil and pulls it off of her face, revealing her face, which as we know in Muslim countries is is a terrible offense. Maybe not, it's definitely not good. And then a man pops up to intercede on the kid's behalf as he's being berated by this woman's husband. And he speaks Arabic or Farsi or whatever the, whatever foreign language it is that they're speaking diffuses the situation, sits down, and then introduces himself and talks to the couple. Now what we've done here is we've set up a situation that had a big emotional hook, get us in there, and then a stranger meeting our heroes in the first five minutes of the film. So clearly this man is going to be important to the rest of the movie just based on on other movies that we've seen. That's how it goes. If if our heroes meet a stranger early in the film, he's going to be important in some way. And that turns out to be true, of course. And because you have a stranger meeting our heroes, it's a perfect opportunity to tell our audience exactly who these people are, where they come from, what they're doing here. Everything the audience could possibly want to know or need need to know before the movie really gets going. So Hitch answers – so going back to the AFI interview, Hitch answers the question this way. He says, there are moments where you have to use a certain amount of footage to introduce the character. In that particular case, you didn't just introduce them by small talk. You need some piece of action that would be interesting to look at rather than just, this is John Smith, this is his wife, and this is his son. In other words, it's like all exposition. It's a pill that has to be sugar-coated. In other words, you're telling the audience something, giving them some piece of information, but at the same time, it must appear to be something else. And that's the trick to exposition. It's figuring out a way to sugarcoat that information, to give it in an interesting way, in a way that feels natural, not forced, doesn't feel like it's slowing down the film at all, just flows seemingly organically. Well, that is all I have for this episode. I'm sorry that it was so short. Um, but once again, I sort of painted myself into a corner because I'm I'm trying to present to you Hitchcock's thoughts and ideas and not my own as much. And uh, unfortunately, because the story is so similar, it's a remake of his own film. Um, all we have is what I've already given you on the first film, on The Man Who Knew Too Much. We talked about the MacGuffin. We talked about humor. We talked about you know, weaving locations into your story. And uh, so at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot I can tell you other than you need to keep the audience in mind. That's all I have. And that seems to be what Hitchcock was so 
concerned about when it came to this film. However, I do have a brief historical note that I can give you to kind of cap all this off. I believe I told you that The Trouble with Harry was the first movie Albert Hitchcock shot in Vista Vision. That is not actually true. In fact, the first movie Hitchcock actually shot in Vista Vision was To Catch a Thief with Cary Grant and I was going to say Doris Day. That's not right. Grace Kelly. Trouble with Harry was very shortly filmed after that. And that was also in VistaVision. And The Man Who Knew Too Much was in VistaVision, as well as the next two films we're going to talk about over our next two class sessions. Um, However, that is all I have for this class session. If you are, um, if you want to reach out to me or communicate with me in any way about the content of the show, you have any questions, any other feedback, you can uh, reach me at HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Twitter um, with at, excuse me, uh, just Hitchcock University on Twitter or on Facebook and uh, Hitch underscore you on Twitter. Uh, that is all I have for this class session. Um, please uh, leave comments or feedback or ratings wherever it is you listen to the show, wherever it's on SoundCloud, uh, Apple Podcast, iTunes Podcast, iTunes. I don't know what they call it anymore. I'm going to have to get that right. Um, or Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, wherever it is. Um, so, yeah, thank you for attending Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Mm-hmm.